Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. Hey, welcome to Ikea, where even this desk is circular. Huh, how so? Looks pretty rectangular to me. It's because we're always looking to repair, reuse, and we love our products, like buying back your Ikea items for store credit. Or shop our as-is section for great deals. You can even order free spare parts. Get on the circular path for a more sustainable future. Still a rectangle. Get started at ikea-usa.com slash circular. Visit ikea-usa.com slash circular for as-is information and buyback and resale terms and conditions. Spare parts not available for all products. At IKEA, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the gray strandum wing chair, was $369, now $299. And the IKEA Plus 365 nine-piece cookware set was $129.99, now $89.99. And hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at ikea-usa.com today. Due to the graphic nature of these crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of violence and murder that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. Taiwan Jones had her hand on the front door when the phone rang. She rolled her eyes and put her purse down to answer it. When she heard the voice on the other end of the line, her eyes went wide. Her friend, Joelle Tillis, sounded frantic. Without even pausing to say hello, Joelle begged Taiwan to come over and pick her up. She needed to get away, now. Taiwan could tell that something was seriously wrong, but her car had recently broken down. She had to take the bus today. Joelle started to tell Taiwan what was happening, but her voice cut out mid-sentence. Taiwan immediately called back, but only got a busy signal. She paced around the room, cradling the phone in her arms. Joelle sounded terrified, and there were strange noises in the background, like she was running away from a fight. Taiwan assumed Joelle was having trouble with her boyfriend, Ivren. It wouldn't have been the first time. Taiwan tried calling back again, no response. She wasn't sure whether to intervene or let it go. In the past, fights between Joelle and Ivren had always blown over, and Joelle resented anyone else getting involved. But this time, Taiwan couldn't shake the feeling of dread settling over her. Joelle Tillis was in trouble. Hi, I'm Lainey Hobbs, and this is Crimes of Passion, a ParCast original. The legal definition of a crime of passion is a violent crime that occurs in the throes of extreme emotion, leaving no time to reflect on the consequences. But in this show, we explore how passionate relationships sometimes lead us to criminal activity. How does a husband and wife become killer and victim, or killer and co-conspirator? 
If there's a thin line between love and hate, what manipulates our relationships into deadly results? You can find episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Crimes of Passion for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Last week, we discussed 23-year-old medical student Ivan Bolden Jr. and his increasingly possessive relationship with his girlfriend, 22-year-old Joelle Tillis. Ivan obsessed over Joelle and tried to keep her to himself by isolating her from others. When she wouldn't break off her friendship with 18-year-old Brenda Spicer, Ivan murdered Brenda and left her body in a dumpster. This week, we'll talk about the police investigation and trial that followed Brenda's murder. We'll also explore the tragic end of Joelle and Ivan's relationship two years later in 1989. On the morning of March 6, 1987, a scream of horror rang out across the campus of Northeast Louisiana University. A groundskeeper had been emptying trash bins into a dumpster when he discovered the decomposing corpse of a young woman inside. It didn't take long for campus police to identify the body as former student, 18-year-old Brenda Spicer. Brenda had been reported missing by her friends the night before, an autopsy would later reveal that she had been strangled. Monroe police spent the next few days conducting interviews with students, professors, and coaches. When they asked if Brenda had any enemies, one name kept coming up, Ivan Bolden Jr. Everyone knew Ivan was dating Brenda's best friend, Joel Tillis, and that he hated the friendship between the two women. He was jealous of the time they spent together and had even accused them of having an affair. Within a day of the murder, police had already identified a suspect and his motive. Things looked even more clear-cut after police received a tip from the owner of a gas station in town. On the evening of the murder, he spotted a young white woman talking to an African-American man across the street from his station. The two individuals he saw fit the descriptions of Brenda Spicer and Ivan Bolden exactly. The station owner saw them go into a nearby storage unit together, but he never saw them leave. After some investigation, police discovered that Ivan Bolden was leasing a unit inside the very same warehouse. On March 7th, only a day after Brenda's body was discovered, authorities searched the unit and found blood all over the floor. They'd discovered the crime scene. On Friday, March 20th, Ivan Bolden was indicted for second-degree murder. He surrendered to the police that same day and was booked on a $150,000 bond. Residents of Ivan's hometown were shocked. James White, the former student activities director at Ivrin's high school said, he was one of our best students. He was a leader, a very dependable, trustworthy, hardworking type of fellow. I thought there wasn't any better than Bolden. 
As more grim details emerged, the community grew horrified. The coroner released a report indicating that Brenda had bruises on her shoulders, abrasions on her throat, and handprints on the insides of her thighs. Although the coroner declined to make an official determination that Brenda had been raped, he reported that he'd uncovered evidence not consistent with voluntary sex. Ivern had always been a fiercely competitive, passionate, often stubborn individual, but those who knew him had trouble believing he was capable of such a violent, brutal act. Surprisingly, Ivern's most vocal supporter was Joelle Tillis. She'd broken up with him the day of the murders, but after he was arrested, Ivern managed to slip back into Joelle's life thanks to regular phone calls from the county jail. To reach her, he dialed up her dorm room, and when she answered, he turned on the charm, asking how she was, what she'd been doing. She was closed off at first, but he lured her in with faux concern and sweet talk. He was an expert at playing the role of the good boyfriend. Here he was, stuck in jail. But instead of feeling sorry for himself, he was doting on Joelle. She'd have to appreciate that. Ivan could tell by the sound of her voice that Joelle wasn't in the mood to talk to him, but eventually he wore her down. He always did. She was scared and lonely. She needed support, and he was the man who could give it to her. He'd show her that. He'd make her need him. Perhaps Joelle was afraid of Ivan. She might have feared that he'd implicate her in the crime and accuse her of being his co-conspirator, or she may have been in denial about his involvement. She could have also worried about her reputation after being romantically involved with a murderer for years. Whatever her reasons, Joelle decided to support Ivrin's claims of innocence and even help cover up for him. This dynamic is common in abusive relationships. Before I continue with Joelle and Ivrin's psychology, please note, I am not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but I have done a lot of research for this show. In a 2011 study published in the journal Social Science and Medicine, researchers listened to recordings of jailhouse phone calls between domestic violence perpetrators and victims, where victims later recanted their assault accusations. They found that perpetrators often manipulated their victims by appealing to their partner's sympathy, minimizing their own actions, and encouraging an us-against-the-world mentality. Abusers are highly adept at playing on the emotions of their victims, as Ivrin did with Joelle. She became one of Ivrin's regular visitors in jail, so that even locked up, he could keep tabs on her and her family. On Thursday, April 9th, Ivrin attended a hearing asking to have his bond reduced. He produced a witness to testify on his behalf, Joelle's mother, Marlis Bates. Marlis testified that Ivrin had escorted her to Joelle's basketball game around 6 p.m., the same time he was spotted arguing with Brenda in front of the storage warehouse. She also said he remained seated next to her for the entirety of the game. When the service station owner testified, he seemed less certain than Marlis. He told the court that while he had seen a man fitting Ivrin's description, 
he had been too far away to make an exact identification. Although this was simply a bail reduction hearing and not Ivren's criminal trial, it gave prosecutors a preview of how Ivren intended to defend his case. He argued that he was never at the warehouse at all, and he had an alibi to back his assertion. The judge ended up denying the bail reduction, but the hearing worked to sow doubts in the community about Ivren's guilt. Afterward, Ivren posted the bond using his father's business as collateral and was released while he awaited trial. The hearing invigorated Ivren. He was confident he could poke holes in the prosecution's case. Then, just weeks after his release, he was rattled by a strange twist in the case. His defense attorney had been struck by lightning and killed. The unusual death only added to the spectacle and wild rumors that swirled around the case. Some began claiming that Joel Tillis and Brenda Spicer were involved in a same-sex affair. In the conservative southern town, that was more than enough to incite a scandal. Eventually, even stranger gossip surfaced. NLU students began repeating a story that Brenda's body had been entirely drained of blood at the crime scene. Other gossip suggested that Brenda was having an affair with the chief of the Monroe police when she died. Of course, there were plenty of rumors about Ivren too. Some said he had a violent history with a previous girlfriend before Joel. Others claimed a high school girlfriend of his had disappeared while they were dating. She had been labeled a runaway, but Ivren's arrest now called that into question. Police attempted to substantiate these claims against Ivren, but found no witness willing to make a credible statement on the record. Ivren tried to ignore the gossip. He retreated to New Orleans to continue his medical school coursework at LSU. He hoped to uphold his image as the model student destined for success, but his plans soon fell apart. Not long after he returned to school, he was informed that he'd failed five of his classes and had been kicked out of the med school program. Ivren decided to enroll in a graduate school program to study chemistry instead, desperate to keep his scholarly image alive. It was also important to Ivren to keep Joel on his side. In January of 1988, she moved in with Ivren in New Orleans. By then, Joelle seemed to have convinced herself that Ivren really was innocent. And she was angry, not at Ivren, but at the police and prosecutors. As far as she was concerned, they'd disrupted her life, and now they were trying to ruin Ivren's. She dismissed the evidence against her boyfriend. At one point, she even claimed that the blood on the storage room floor could have come from one of them getting a cut while moving around boxes. She also suggested that someone else could have broken into the unit and killed Brenda there. She searched for any explanation she could find. She even suggested to friends that Brenda's killer must still be out there, either because she believed it was true or because she wanted to protect Ivren. Her loyalty would soon be put to the test. In March of 1988, a year after Brenda's murder, Ivren's criminal trial finally began. Up next, 
the Monroe community picks sides as Ivan Bolden Jr. fights murder charges. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As a plant-based cheese company, Dea has never talked about beef in an ad before because someone somewhere once had a beef with saying beef and plant-based together. So putting a slice of Dea cheese on a beef burger, not okay. Well, our delicious melty cheese has a beef with your beef about beef. Because any step towards plant-forward eating is a step in the right direction. Daya, 100% plant-based, even if you're not. Now made with Daya Oat Cream Blend. Now, back to the story. A year after the body of 18-year-old Brenda Spicer was discovered in a dumpster on Northeastern Louisiana University's campus, the murder trial against 24-year-old Ivan Bolden Jr. commenced. The prosecution felt confident in their case going into the trial. They introduced dozens of witnesses, including basketball coaches and teammates of Brenda, who testified about Ivan's jealous, possessive behavior. But the prosecution also called 22-year-old Joelle Tillis, Ivan's girlfriend and Brenda's best friend, as a witness. Perhaps they expected her to corroborate their depiction of Ivan as angry and controlling. Instead, Joelle downplayed Ivren's well-documented contempt toward Brenda. She acknowledged there was tension between them, but claimed they were always polite to each other. She even denied that Ivren behaved in a jealous manner. She told the jury he was a caring and loving partner. She also alluded to other potential suspects, such as previous boyfriends of Brenda's, that the police had ignored. When it was the defense's turn to present their case, they called Joelle's mother to the stand. She reiterated her claim that she'd spent the evening of the murder with Ivan by her side. He wouldn't have had time to kill Brenda Spicer or hide her body because he'd been watching Joelle's basketball game with her family the entire time. Ivan testified on his own behalf as well. He highlighted his many accomplishments, valedictorian in high school, Eagle Scout, and a magna cum laude graduate of Northeast Louisiana University. He admitted that he'd recently failed out of medical school, but claimed it was due to the stress of being accused of murder. Regarding his feelings toward Brenda, he told the jury he sometimes felt annoyed by her because she intruded on his private time with Joelle but he never felt anything stronger than irritation. Ivan presented himself as an upstanding citizen, unfairly persecuted, and many seemed to sympathize with him. The trial went on for five and a half days. After the defense rested, the jury deliberated for about three hours and came back with a verdict of not guilty. Ivan emerged from the courtroom a winner, as always. He said, I feel good. I felt real good all the way through this. 
jurors polled later said they were persuaded by his alibi witnesses. They felt the police had jumped to conclusions too quickly and had failed to consider other possible suspects before arresting Ivren. One juror remarked, their investigation seemed a little hasty. Another juror said, I felt they couldn't really pinpoint that he was at the storage warehouse at the time of the crime. The service station owner who claimed to have seen Ivren and Brenda together on the day of the murder didn't provide a specific enough description to convince the jury. Nobody else could definitively place him at the scene. Four days after the acquittal, police announced they were reopening the investigation into Brenda Spicer's death. The Monroe police chief told the press, there's been a murder committed and somebody's guilty. Meanwhile, Ivren tried to start over. Ivren returned to New Orleans after the trial. He didn't complete his graduate program in chemistry. He found himself feeling aimless. He had won his freedom, but lost everything else. He felt frustrated that he'd been denied the future he'd envisioned for himself as a successful doctor. But throughout it all, he still had Joelle. She stayed with Ivren in New Orleans, but their relationship was tense after the trial. Joel thought he'd be grateful to be free of the murder charges. Instead, he seemed more angry than ever. In May of 1988, two months after Ivren's acquittal, Joel confided in a friend that he'd been beating her. The friend invited Joel to come live with her in Memphis, and Joel agreed. But, as he had done in college, Ivren pursued Joelle wherever she went. He followed her to Tennessee and eventually convinced her to stay with him. For a while, they lived together in Memphis, but nothing else changed. Joelle got a job at a lady footlocker store while Ivren struggled to find work. Eventually, he found a job as a guard with a security company, but he still felt unfulfilled. Both Joel and Ivren thought he should have amounted to more. They fought, physically sometimes, but Joel downplayed their conflicts to friends. She tried to enjoy old pleasures. At one point, she went to see an away game for her former NLU basketball team, but was crestfallen when friends and teammates gave her the cold shoulder. One teammate later wrote, Joel was a sweet girl when she came to NLU, but when she covered for Ivren, knowing he raped and killed Spicer, she burned her bridges. Joelle's family seemed to feel similarly, though her mother, Marlis Bates, had testified on Ivren's behalf. She and others were concerned that the relationship was bad for Joelle. They pushed her to break up with him. But Joelle always had a rebellious, defiant streak. Back in school, when Ivren had pressured her to break her friendship with Brenda, it had only driven the two women closer together. Now, when everyone around her urged Joelle to leave Ivren, she adamantly refused. She reassured friends and family that she knew how to handle him. She didn't tell anyone that Ivren's jealous, possessive behavior was once more consuming their relationship. Ivren again accused her of having an affair with one of her close female friends. 
Joelle then reportedly found letters from one of Ivran's male friends that made her suspicious he was also engaging in a same-sex affair. It's not clear whether either of the claims had any merit, but when Joelle threatened to show Ivran's letters to others, he grabbed her arm and twisted it behind her back, spraining her wrist. At the emergency room, she told the doctor that she fell while jogging. Joelle frequently left Ivran for a few days at a time, but when he kept calling her, apologizing, she went back to him. It was the same cycle she'd been stuck in while at college. Every time she tried to break free, he convinced her to stay. Still, she didn't want to fully commit to the man who was abusing her. Around this time, Joelle started seeing other men, first behind Ivran's back and then more openly, as if she was flaunting it, trying to make Ivran angry. It worked, and Ivran raged against her any time she came home late or talked on the phone for too long. He sometimes refused to let her drive anywhere, insisting on giving her a ride to and from work. Joelle told a friend that Ivran was obsessive and she felt trapped. Then, Ivran lost his security guard job and the couple's stresses multiplied. Now, he had nothing else to do but monitor Joelle and her whereabouts. Despite their struggles in front of others, Ivran and Joelle tried to keep playing the role of a happy couple. On Mother's Day, May 14, 1989, they drove to Hammond to visit Joelle's family together. Before leaving, Ivran and Joelle gave Marlis a big hug. Joelle's mother later recalled, I never had any indication that Joelle was unhappy. If Joelle had given me the indication that something was wrong, there's nothing that would have kept me from going up to get my baby. But Joelle must have already been planning to leave on her own. When she returned to Memphis, she emptied a savings account she shared with Ivren into her personal checking account. On May 17th, Joelle spoke on the phone with an old friend living in Atlanta, Sheila Sanders. She called around 11.30 and they talked until nearly 4 a.m. Joelle told Sheila she was tired of the relationship and wanted it to end. Sheila was supportive. She asked Joelle if she was afraid of Ivren and Joelle answered, no. Sheila later said, I really don't think she was afraid either. Despite their conflict and Ivren's violent temper, Joelle still seemed to feel as if she had the upper hand in the relationship. Perhaps she thought that because Ivren had only narrowly escaped a murder conviction the first time, with her help, that he'd never do anything to risk being put in that situation again. The next morning, May 18th, Joelle and Ivren had an argument about who was going to take the car that day. They seemed to reconcile enough to get breakfast together at McDonald's, but when they returned home, the fight continued. It's possible Joelle finally told Ivren that she was leaving once and for all. At 11.30 a.m., she phoned a friend, Taiwan Jones, and pleaded with her to come pick her up. In the middle of her pleas, the conversation suddenly cut off. Police would later speculate that the call dropped after Ivren ripped the phone cord out of the wall. Taiwan tried to call back, but she only got a busy signal. 
Back in Ivrin and Joel's apartment, the fight turned deadly. He slammed Joel onto the bed and grabbed her by the throat. Then he squeezed until her neck snapped. Joel Tillis was dead. Once Ivrin's rage faded, it was replaced by a cold, cunning determination. He knew he'd be the first suspect if Joel were found dead. His only recourse was to hide the body somewhere where nobody would ever discover it. Ivrin quickly ripped off Joel's work shirt to make it harder to identify her. He ran downstairs to move his car closer to the building's entrance. On the way out, he saw police conducting a drug raid in a neighboring apartment. Ivrin nervously paced around his apartment, feeling the pressure build in his head. He had to get out, out of this place, out of this situation. If he stayed calm, he could pull it all off, but he had to get rid of Joel's body. Ivrin shook his head, feeling angry all over again. She had to keep pushing him. They always had to keep pushing, always had to have the last word. It was infuriating. Joelle thought she had a trump card. She thought she could threaten to leave. What had she expected? For him to turn meek and beg her to stay? She'd overplayed her hand, badly, and she paid for it. But now, he was in trouble. Ivrin stopped pacing and took a deep breath, trying to settle his nerves. He could get out of this. He was certain of it. He wouldn't let anybody get the best of him, least of all, Joelle. Psychologist, author, and former FBI profiler, Dr. Mary Ellen O'Toole has said that some people seem to have a knack for getting away with crimes. She wrote, they tend to land on their feet they are cool under crisis. Even if they commit murder by accident, they are not the types of people who will seem agitated or sad. Rather, they think strategically, realizing they must come up with a story quickly in order to divert attention away from themselves. They mislead police, stage crime scenes, and destroy evidence. They don't want to get caught and will stop at nothing to avoid getting caught. After murdering Joelle, Ivren didn't panic. When the drug raid across the hall ended and police left, Ivren wrapped Joelle's body in the bedsheets, carried her to his car, and sped away. He drove out of Tennessee, crossing the state line and stopping just outside of Forest City, Arkansas. Then, he pulled up to a remote ditch, dumped Joelle's body, and covered it with brush and plant debris. When it was done, he raced back to Memphis. Once he was home, with distance between himself and Joel's body, Ivrin felt more confident. He'd gotten away with murder before. Perhaps he could do it again. Coming up, Ivrin flees Tennessee as questions swirl about Joel's disappearance. Now, back to the story. Just a year after 24-year-old Ivan Bolden Jr. was acquitted for murder in 1988, history repeated itself. Ivan strangled his girlfriend, Joel Tillis, 
and hid her body in a ditch in Arkansas. Ivren hoped he could avoid trouble as long as Joelle's body wasn't discovered, but her absence was noticed right away. On the afternoon of May 18th, she never showed up for work and her boss called the apartment asking for her. Ivren claimed he'd dropped her off at the mall where she worked. He didn't know why she never showed. Joelle's friends also called looking for her. Ivren told them she must have walked out on him as she'd been threatening to do for weeks. But Joelle's friend, Taiwan, was suspicious. Joelle had called her the day before asking for a ride. It sounded like a struggle had occurred before the line went dead. She warned Ivren that she'd go to the police unless he did it first. So on May 19th, Ivren went to the authorities and filed a missing persons report. Memphis police immediately suspected foul play, but found no evidence to back it up. They grilled Ivren on Joel's whereabouts, but he stuck to his story. He had dropped her off at work on the 18th and hadn't seen her since. On June 2nd, nearly two weeks after her disappearance, a Memphis detective told the press, this is just not a typical missing persons case. Usually by now, the person shows up somewhere. Memphis police called Ivren every day, asking if he'd heard from Joel. Eventually, he grew tired of having them on his back. He emptied his apartment and moved back to his parents' house in Shreveport. But he was only there a few days before he took off again, this time to Florida. He told family that he believed Joel was there and he was going to look for her. Perhaps he knew he was running out of time and wanted to get away before the walls closed in. On Sunday, June 11th, a local resident of St. Francis County, Arkansas, was out hunting with his dogs when he caught the scent of a decomposing carcass. He looked down into a ditch, expecting to find a dead animal. Instead, he saw the body of Joel Tillis. He reported it to the sheriff's department, who sent the body to the medical examiner in Little Rock. Authorities concluded that she'd been dead for about three weeks. Once Memphis police heard about the find, they immediately connected it to their missing persons case. Using dental records from Joel's family, on June 16th, the medical examiner confirmed the body was Joel Tillis. Test results indicated that she had been strangled. Ivan Bolden was named as the prime suspect in the murder. Joelle's family struggled to process the news. Marlis Bates had considered Ivan a son. She'd provided an alibi in his last murder trial. She couldn't bring herself to say outright that Ivan had murdered her daughter, but she told reporters, Ivan knows what happened to Joelle. He knows more than he is telling. As family gathered for Joelle's funeral on Tuesday, June 20th, Ivan and his family stayed away. His parents said they would have gone to Joelle's memorial, but they didn't think they'd be welcome. Ivan waited to see what would happen next, still hiding out in Florida. He worried that police might come and drag him back to Memphis, but nobody ever did. Although police had a murder victim and a likely suspect, the case was hampered by jurisdictional issues. The body was discovered in Arkansas, but authorities believe the murder had taken place in Memphis, Tennessee. 
nobody seems certain whether the Memphis Police Department or the St. Francis County Sheriff's Department should lead the investigation. Both were constrained by budgetary concerns and neither wanted to devote precious resources and manpower towards an investigation with no physical evidence tying the suspect to the crime. A month after Joel's body was discovered, the two departments were still arguing about it. The St. Francis County Sheriff told reporters, right now we're just trying to put the case back in Tennessee where it belongs. When reporters asked whether he should arrest Ivren, the sheriff replied, Right now, it's still premature to look for him. Memphis police expressed similar reticence. The department conducted one search of Ivorin's parents' house, but when it didn't produce any significant evidence, the case ground to a halt. Detective John Wilburn told reporters, sometimes we know who the perpetrator is, but we still can't prove it. By September, three months after Joelle's body was discovered, both jurisdictions had effectively dropped their investigations. The St. Francis County Sheriff's Department asserted, we have simply done all we can do. Memphis police officials responded, you want to know if we are taking over the investigation. We're not prepared to, we're not going to. The body was found in Arkansas. Joel's family grew increasingly frustrated by the delays. Ivern continued to keep his head down and hope for the best. Contacted by journalists, he said, I know my name is being bounced around a lot up there, but my attorney has advised me not to say anything. But reporters still kept calling him, calls Ivern ignored as he packed up his belongings in his shabby, cheap Florida apartment. It probably wasn't prudent to answer them, after all, he had trouble keeping the glee out of his voice. For years, police and lawyers had been dogging him, but their efforts came to nothing. He'd almost like to rub it in their faces, but that wouldn't be smart. He always had to stay smart, ahead of everyone. That was how he'd stay alive and stay free. The only thing left to do now was to get out of town, somewhere where nobody knew his name or face. His past was holding him back, but with any luck, he'd be able to move on. Without Joel, he could find a better job suited to his intelligence and education. Then he'd find a loyal woman who put him first for once. He'd have the life he was always meant to have. Ivren smiled. For the first time in a while, he felt good about the future. Ivan relocated to New Jersey and started over once again. He secured work at a milk processing plant and got a part-time job counseling at-risk youth at a home for boys. He even began dating a new woman. She apparently discovered a news clipping about Brenda Spicer's death early in their relationship, but he assured her that he was innocent. After all, he'd been acquitted. By January of 1991, nearly two years had passed since Joel's death. Ivren probably thought he was safe. He had a bold confidence often seen in criminals who beat the system. Criminal behavior expert Stanton Samenow has said, as an offender gets away with more and more crimes, he becomes emboldened and develops a sense of invulnerability. 
Some criminals who get away with complicated crimes subsequently let down their guard while committing a relatively minor offense. After killing two women, it would make sense for Ivren to want to stay under the radar, but apparently he wasn't too concerned about drawing attention to himself. That winter, he decided he wanted to own a handgun, which required a background check. His permit application raised a red flag. Ivren claimed that he'd never been arrested, but his records clearly showed a 1987 arrest for the murder of Brenda Spicer. Around the same time, Ivren's new relationship turned rocky. He told friends that his girlfriend was too insecure and clingy. Eventually, he broke up with her, but she didn't want to let him go. When she wouldn't leave him alone, he threatened her, reminding her of the news clipping she had seen about Brenda Spicer's murder. He looked her dead in the eyes and told her, I did it. Then, he admitted to killing Joelle. His girlfriend didn't quite believe him. She thought he was just trying to scare her so that she'd leave. His confession made her suspicious, but she refused to leave. She was still angry over the breakup. In March of 1991, she broke into his apartment and ransacked it. Ivren called the police, reported the burglary, and filed a restraining order against her. Police arrested his ex-girlfriend, who immediately told them that Ivren was a murderer. He admitted it to her. Her statement, combined with Ivren's interest in owning a gun, piqued the suspicions of Delran authorities. They passed the information along to the Memphis police, who finally agreed to reopen the case. On Monday, April 22nd, an investigator from Memphis arrived in New Jersey. Ivern was called down to the police station to submit to a polygraph test, which he failed. Police interrogated him for over five hours. Ivern seemed exhausted from the police scrutiny that had followed him for years. Under intense questioning, he finally broke down. He admitted that he'd killed Joelle Tillis after she had threatened to leave him in 1989. Detectives pressed him, was there anyone else? Finally, he confessed to strangling Brenda Spicer as well, and he was immediately arrested. Despite his confession, he couldn't be tried again for Brenda Spicer's death since he had already been acquitted. A second trial would violate the U.S. Constitution's Double Jeopardy Clause. However, he could still be charged with killing Joel Tillis. In August of 1991, he was extradited to Memphis to stand trial. Facing a life sentence, Ivren's usual confidence was shaken. He didn't dare hope to escape conviction a second time. In February of 1992, 27-year-old Ivren agreed to a plea deal. Rather than fighting the charges, he pled guilty to the lesser charge of voluntary manslaughter, receiving a 10-year prison sentence. But many members of the public were unhappy with what they considered to be a lenient sentence. Joelle's mother told reporters, "'Nobody can justify to me why Ivren only got 10 years.'" In Monroe, Authorities who had worked on Brenda Spicer's murder case were furious too. Even if they couldn't hold a second murder trial, 
they wanted to find some way to hold Ivrin accountable for her death. On Monday, March 9, 1992, prosecutors filed perjury charges. They argued that Ivrin had lied under oath when he took the stand to defend himself in his 1988 murder trial. After a lengthy battle, prosecutors proceeded with their case in January of 1995. The jury unanimously found him guilty. Ivrin, now 30, was sentenced to a 10-year prison term, which would run concurrently with his prison sentence in Tennessee. His subsequent appeals were denied. Ivrin served nearly seven years of his 10-year term until he was released on parole in 1998. He returned to his hometown of Shreveport and kept out of public life, working at his father's business. He reportedly married in 2011. There are no public reports accusing Ivrin of any acts of violence since his release from prison. Perhaps his entitlement, his need to dominate others, and his desire to win at all costs were subdued by the court losses and punishment. This serves as little comfort to his victims and their families, who paid the ultimate price for his arrogance. Thanks again for tuning into Crimes of Passion. We will be back Wednesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Crimes of Passion and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals like Crimes of Passion for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Crimes of Passion on Spotify, just open the app and type Crimes of Passion in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. We'll see you next time when true love meets true crime. Crimes of Passion was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Trent Williamson, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Crimes of Passion was written by Christina Pamies, with writing assistance by Abigail Cannon. I'm Lainey Hobbs. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed these episodes and want to hear more, remember to follow Crimes of Passion free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes air weekly every Wednesday.